Hello and welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Gaia Harrington. Gaia, how are you? I'm good. Glad to be here. Glad to have you here. And I've looked forward to this conversation, both since I learned about your work and just to talk about limits to growth and people who really know it and get it. And if it's okay with you, I'm going to read your background and what brought me to you. So to yeah. ground it for the listeners. Mm-hmm. So you are the Director of Sustainability Services at KPMG US. And this is the job description. And I, I read this, I'm like, oh, I would love this job. Guy is the Sustainability and Dynamic Systems Analyst or System Analyst Lead in North and South America as part of a global center of excellence. She works to provide large corporate clients and KPMG partners in the Americas with long-term risk management and or business strategy advice, which whenever I hear a lot of people say, oh, only governments and corporations can make a difference. And I read that you get to give advice based on a perspective of systems thinking to governments and corporations. And um, so you're responsible for development and implementation of the KPMG dynamic assessment method a new analytic and holistic technique based on interconnectivity. Uh, DA has been, what you work on has been applied in modeling climate change risks, business strategy integration of the UN Sustainable Development Goals, as well as other applications in the financial sector, manufacturing, energy, technology, agriculture, and communications. And there's a bit more, but I want to say where, how I came to you. Starting from when I was in college, studying math and physics, I learned dynamical systems, which is like how it starts off with how money grows in a bank. But then it's, you have, if you have fish in a pond and they interact with other fish or rabbits and foxes, like how different species can interact with each other. And I thought it was just very, very interesting. Years later, as an adult, I would look at the environment and think, you know, people should look at the environment this way. And some did, some didn't. And then I came across this book, Limits to Growth. And as I was reading Limits to Growth, thinking about the environment, I remember reading this book. And it was this was within just after the 30-year update came, up, came out in 2002. The original book came out in 1972, if I remember right. And I'm reading it thinking, yes, this is how to look at these things. These are not independent things. The environment is not separate from the economy. It's not separate from um, our quality of life. And... But the people did something that I didn't do, which was they did the research. They got the numbers. They, they created a, a model to put the numbers into to see what results came out. And it was so refreshing to me to see someone approaching this the way that I thought was the most effective way of approaching it. And it, they came up with a whole bunch of different models of possible outcomes. And there was all these criticisms. And I, I'm gonna, I put criticisms in quotes because... I've not come across the criticism that was an accurate, like they were criticizing straw men, like not what they're about. These, all these different models were not predictions. They were saying, what are the general trends? What happens if we have more resources, if we have less resources, if we put more focus into technology, if we put more focus into changing our values? And it really gives you a feel for what are the possible outcomes for our world, especially one of the big trends that you see is overshoot and collapse which I'll leave for the moment what that means. And a lot of people said, well, they predicted that the world was going to fall apart in like by the year 2000. But that was just one possibility, one trend that you could see. But they did show all these different models. And there's one thing that it's very interesting to see, did the world behave like any of the models? Not that they were predicting, but it could be like that. And so every now and then people would do look back at the data and compare the data with their models and see how it fits. And that's what you did. Am I characterizing that about right? Yeah, absolutely. So it was a systems model. So it's, um, and I, by the way, my, my background is actually in econometrics. So my first master's was in econometrics and then my second was in sustainability. But the first was econometrics and that, uh, that's a different kind of modeling. Uh, and so this was a new way of modeling to actually model systems that where there's a lot of interaction. And I think one of the key things in a, uh, in a systems model is that variables can very much interact with each other all the time. And this is not true in a lot of uh, statistical analysis and econometric models. You assume a, a form of constancy, often linearity, um, that can be there under certain circumstances. But in um, things like 
uh, our world, for example, things are way more complex, mm -hmm. right? They're not even complicated in the sense that um, something that's complicated is just, it's a lot of hard work to crack. But once you found the solution, you have it. This is not the case when something is complex. So in a system where everything is interacting, you get this meta behavior of the system itself. Um, and that actually makes it very dynamic. And what a solution that works at one point in time can actually be a, a, a very wrong decision just a, a little time later. So, you re so depending on what you are modeling, you need to be very aware of whether it is something that is just complicated or complex as with the system. And that's actually how I came to system uh, dynamics because I was working in the financial sector initially. And then during the global crisis, um, I was like, oh, we were, we were and, and by the way, central banks are still doing this. Uh, we were monitoring risks in isolation, right? We have liquidity risk. It's a different framework from credit risk. It's a different framework from market risk. But we saw in a crisis that the, these all very much interacted. And that's why, why we had that collapse. So that's actually how I came to this network thing. And then I applied it in the financial sector. And then KPMG said, can you do this for other companies? And that's how I rolled into KPMG. Um, you know, and the funny thing is that um, we, I, I advise these corporations ultimately on really why they should do the right thing to begin with. Mm -hmm. For example, if I talk to a client, uh, I've had a client, for example, who um, uh, was, was a car manufacturer. And they viewed emissions very much as a compliance issue, right? We're going to do that bare minimum. That's it. Mm -hmm. uh, and why is that? Because that's, emissions are very easy to quantify. Um, but what you see in the system is that when things start to interact, you have uh, a cause and effects. So you have a causal pipeline. And then when you look at things in the system, you can look at the root cause. The thing with this is, it's way more effective to work on root causes than at the end of the causal pipeline. We all understand this, right? It's it's probably better to maintain your health than to really take care of it once you get really sick, all those things. So we know this. It's better to avoid costs than to have to clean them up later. But the avoidance part is typically in a very qualitative realm. So uh, back to this client, uh, the emissions are very clear. That's very easy to quantify. But what you saw is that really it also worked down to um, to the reputation, which is which is wooly, right? It's not that not that quantifiable, but actually very uh, impactful. Um, and then if you have a bad reputation, you can't attract the talent that you want, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really this: um, if you um, if you find a way to quantify that a little bit, which is what I did, um, then you you add all that up and you see, oh, it's actually way better to see this as not just a compliance issue, but as a way to be innovative. And that's what I've been doing at KPMG. I want to clarify. So when you say that a system, like the system itself changes, if a, one thing that comes, I mean, there's many examples. I mean, as a physicist, I always think of in quantum mechanics, the act of measuring the thing changes the thing. So you can't just mm. look at it from the outside. I also think of... Um, when someone built, like I think of New York City, Robert Moses built these highways and he would say, oh, we want to get people from one place to another. We, he would build a road and a little while after it was built, it would be full. And he'd say, oh, there was more demand than we thought. So we have to build another road. And what he didn't realize was that building the road created demand. They call it induced demand. So it's not like there was a, a certain amount of demand and what, if you put in a road, you would satisfy. Putting in the road created more demand. And that would build more roads, which created more demand, which built more roads, which created more demand. And it was this ongoing cycle that, that you had to step out of it and see it from a systemic perspective to see you're changing the demand. You're creating more demand. Yeah, that's uh, it's actually a very, uh, I think the, in, in system dynamics, there's, there's all kinds of tools in that, right? And one of them is the uh, dynamic systems modeling, which, and, and of course, limits to growth was based on such a model called, called World 3. But there is also the more qualitative things, uh, recognizing patterns. And what you are describing is 
is a very common uh, pattern, an archetype, as we call it, in systems thinking. Um, the fix that fails. And you see this all the time. Uh, everybody knows it. So you have this quick fix um, to get to your solution, but it's just a fix. It's not a permanent solution. Again, you're not working on the root cause. So you need this fix again and again. And in, uh, often uh, you make the system more dependent on that fix. So the real solution actually might get harder to implement over time as well. Now, I was going to ask, um, I'm going to jump in. I think when you start learning these systems things, did you learn about Donella Meadows and Dennis Meadows as their, per, I, these are a couple of the authors of Limits to Growth. And their, their approach is really, it's, you could call it holistic, but it's, there's a human, human element to it that I think is really intriguing. I'm reading in you, and besides what you're saying, I, I'm reading a, a, a passion for what you do of like, this is something that when you, it's subtle to get, but when you get it, it hits you like a ton of bricks and like, there's no other way. You can't look at systems, not systems like anymore. Yeah, I, I think that's very perceptive. <laughs> yes, I think, because I did this and I have a background that's quantitative, right? Um, um, and so I, I did a very quantitative data analysis on limits to growth. But then really what you discover is that the core message is very, very much about um, our values, right? So the, one of the conclusions from my research was actually, okay, so we have this model where we created different scenarios and now we're aligned very closely to uh, two scenarios, one of which is, is the pollution scenario where we experience collapse um, in, in, in global society as due to pollution, which would include also carbon pollution, of course. And then... Um, you, but the, not all scenarios ended in collapse. We have a stabilized world scenario. And right now we're not on track to following that. Uh, but we're not that far removed from it. So one of the key messages of my research was we still have time. We have a last opportunity, really, to radically alter our trajectory and align ourselves more with the stabilized world scenario. Now, this scenario is actually one of the assumptions uh, in that scenario was that we consciously shift our focus away from industrial output. So in, in, in popular terms, stuff, more material stuff for everyone. And, and divert it very uh, intensely to um, uh, services, which would include education and health and pollution abatement. And that would, uh, and there was a variable in, the, in there that showed our welfare levels. And that will leave us with the highest welfare levels on a global scale, uh, and and notably not a collapse. So to be clear, collapse is um, is from uh, ecology, and it just means a steep decline. It doesn't mean that humanity would cease to exist, but it does mean a steep decline from our current welfare levels. Now, when you say welfare, you mean the state of being? There's a, a specific measure. It's not like a welfare state giving up money. You mean how? No, people- it's well being. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I use it interchangeably with uh, well-being. And when you say uh, a steep decline, I think a steep decline specifically in the population. Uh, that, that was included. It, it was. It wasn't everything, honestly. So it was also an industrial output, right? So, I mean, you can choose as a society to just not go for stabilized worlds and just uh, keep follow, uh, pursuing this growth uh, in industrial output. Um, which is obviously a very close to this notion of what we call the economy, right? And our entire society is very much primed on this goal of continuous growth, which if you think about it, is it's not very ambitious, right? Growth for um, the sake of itself seems a bit odd of a goal. As long as you are at subsistence level, um, you can see how uh, growth would be a good thing, but still only because it more material at that level adds to your well-being. Once um, in the Western world, once you get to a certain level of stuff, it doesn't really add much to your well-being anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's, it, I just think it's, it's not that outrageous a statement, which is what they did at the time, right? To say, um, well, do we still need this goal? Can we maybe have a different goal, like well-being or something? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's truly incredible, like you said, the, the viciousness uh, which uh, with which they were attacked, right? It seems yeah. to me uh, the 
good and, and sensible statement, um, but they were really attacked. And like you said, a lot of the criticism really wasn't that smart. A, a lot of the times, you said, for example, there was that they said, well, there was one scenario that predicted collapse uh, by the 1990s, that that didn't happen. It's even worse than what you said. Um, that scenario didn't even exist. All collapse patterns in every scenario were uh, after the 2000s. So uh, you wouldn't even have needed to read the book. You could have just looked at the pictures, <laughs> the pictures yeah. and see that every collapse happens in this century. Um, still, though, that was claimed. And then when it didn't happen in the 90s, right, they were like, see, it's all nonsense. And um, Limits to Growth was a bestseller at the time. And then after the 90s, um, it was this notion that it hadn't come true, just spread and people uh, sort of forgot about it. Yeah, my read of, of the, why did they do all these different scenarios? Partly, I'm sure they did a lot more than they put in the book. But I think part of it is we did the research, we found the numbers as best we could, but there's big error bars in the numbers. We don't know how much oil is in the ground. We don't know all the different variables that go in there. And we also don't know what will happen in the future. What will, how will things change? Will we focus more on material growth? Or will we focus more on welfare? And what happens if we do these things? What happens if we don't do those things? The one way to find out is to run the models with different assumptions and see what it shows. If we do this, that'll happen. If we do this, that'll happen. I think that's a really, how else do you figure out how things work? And to say that each of these test runs is a prediction is, is disingenuous. I, you know, it's a straw man, it seems to me. But it's a misunderstanding of what this type of analysis could bring. Yes. And um, I do think that the systems thinking comes to some people uh, more naturally than others. The thing with systems, right, is that if you're part of a system, that also means you, you may be impacted by things you have little control over. Mm-hmm. And this, for, for some people, I have found is um, quite disconcerting. <laughs> it's very interesting because for me, it comes quite naturally. I'm like, yes, obviously, uh, I don't have control over everything. But if you're used to uh, being, if you're, let's say, an older generation um, uh, white male who's always been a manager, um, you, I've noticed that these people don't get it as quickly because they're so used to being in control mm-hmm. uh, or at least having that illusion. Um, and, and I do think it's, it's really in that sense a mindset shift. Like, like you said, to just accept, you know what, we cannot control and cannot predict the future. So, but let's see if we can understand a little bit the general dynamics of what different actions could, um, could result in. And that's really what system uh, dynamics helps us do. It reminds me of a, of a shift. And I didn't really associate it with systems, but in, in my life that I used to think of a lot of life like chess. I would do something, someone else would do something, I would do something, someone else would do something. There's a very clear state of the world in chess, right? This piece is on that square. And somewhere along the lines, I said, some things are like that, but some things are a lot more like surfing. There's no rules. I mean, competitive surfing, there might be rules, but on a surfboard, you're on a wave. The wave could level a house. It's extraordinarily powerful. You can't control the wave, but you can have a really good time. And the goal of surfing is not, there could, I mean, you might still say you're trying to win if win means have a great time, want to keep going surfing. And there's some things in life that I look at as just much more like surfing than chess. But when I was younger, That's everything so was chess It's interesting you say chessboard. Um, Anne-Marie Slaughter has written a book uh, that's called The Chessboard and the Spiderweb. Um, and the, she goes in the same kind of things. Some things really are like chess. Um, you know, in physics, some things really are. Uh, you can just get them with pure math, right? They always work like that. How does a rock fall? There's a formula for that. It doesn't matter how much you're thinking of it. It just falls the same way. Gravity, <laughs> right? Impacts it the same way every time. So there certainly are things like that, right? Um, but on the other spectrum, you have completely random things. And in between, there's this entire realm of things that are a little bit more predictable, 
but not entirely. And um, that's the realm of systems. And what Emery Slaughter said is like, sometimes you, you, you do need to know when you need to use the chessboard and when you need to use the spider web, which is, uh, again, all this, this notion of interconnectedness. So part, you can be in some part of the spider web and there's, you have influence in the things that you are connected to. Mm-hmm. But things that are happening in the other part of the spider web, um, you know, they might impact you when you don't have that much influence or the other way around. If you work here um, in, in what I would call root causes, ultimately you end up all the way down the causal pipeline on the other side of the spider web. If you don't mind me riffing on this, because I'm, I'm, I, I haven't heard this model before. If you're the spider, you, if you get really good, you can tell the vibrations here actually tell you where the animal is. And you like, you can know, like you start picking up the patterns of, like if it vibrates like this, it means I should go in that direction to catch the, the fly that I caught. If, I, if it's moving this direction, maybe it, it got disconnected from the tree and I got to reconnect it over there. I mean, a spider's not thinking this way. I don't think I've never been a spider, so I can't say for sure. <laughs> but I, it, it, if in this model it teaches you to get experience with the patterns, so that you know how what causes what and how to react. Exactly. Yeah, but it does mean you have to be open to a lot of things happening everywhere around you. Um, also, and and that is really a kind of life attitude. So again, it goes back to I think why there was so much really almost aggression towards the limits to growth message because it it, it is on some level really goes down to your uh, to your life your attitude in life and, and the values and, and what you think about what how you think the world works and if you are very emotionally for some reason emotionally invested in seeing this world as uh, and our societies and all our systems as a machine that you just have to push the right levers on and you have that power um being told that that's not really how it works is um is it's is a bit also almost a little bit of an existential crisis i've had one time where i was presenting at a corporation and one man just walked out of the room he was like i don't this is this is i can't no we're not doing this wow that yeah the psychological and emotional part of it is really a big thing. I presume you've also read Thinking in Systems, Donella Meadows' book of like mm-hmm. how to, and because she talks about how, if you have a system, how do you influence it? And there's lots of different ways. And some of the most effective ones are to look at the goals and the values that the system, uh, driving the system, if, if I yes. remembered right. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Uh, leverage points. So you have systems obviously never fully random. So you want to be, if you want to have a lot of influence, you have to find the leverage point. And the goal, and the goal is a very high leverage point because ultimately everything will go towards that goal. The system's goal, everything else will go towards that. That's, for example, I get this question a lot. Um, so I'm just going <laughs> to, I've got to address it right now, uh, uh, which is, yeah, but how about technological innovation, right? This is a very common question. But won't we just innovate ourselves out of limits to growth? Because <laughs> uh, we've done that in the past. First of all, no, we haven't. Like we, there's been some innovation, but technology is a tool. So as long as our system's purpose is growth, which it is, um, you, you know, you want to know the goal of a system, you look at its behavior. And look at what people say that the goal is. And look at their behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and everything, we measure everything. We define success as a nation um, on the, the GDP growth. And so as long as that's the goal, technology will mostly further that interest. And so that's why, for example, yes, we've seen a lot of technological innovation in solar, but that technology had already been around for a long time. Um, and a lot more innovation when when we had the resource uh, scarcity scare um, in the in the in the seventies and eighties. We just um, uh, most of the technological innovation went to being able to go dig deeper into more dispersed sources, and that makes sense because as long as we have this goal of growth, that's what all the technological innovation is going towards. So I. 
I have on my, on my list of questions here. One of is, what do you think of technology versus leadership or values? Yeah, so technology is, to be clear, I do think that we have an enormous amount of innovative powers as human beings. And I, I think it's, a, it's not even fully tapped. It's because we're underutilizing a large part of our population. A lot of people don't have access to education, right? Uh, we're, not, we're still underutilizing pretty much everywhere in the world half of the female population. So we have, there is an enormous power um, in, in our innovative capabilities. Um, so absolutely. And of course, it's going to be uh, an absolutely crucial part of uh, what we need as a sustainability revolution. Um, but we won't, we have, it's still a tool. So we have to aim it properly. So the most important thing is always in whatever you do and whatever you use, values and a goal. We need to set that first. And then, yes, technology is going to be a pivotal part of the solution. How is this, if you don't mind getting personal, how does this play out in your work, in what you do, KPMG, or even in your personal life? I presume that you've, that you look for systems in your, in your worlds. Uh, how does it change how you live, how you behave? Oh, yeah. You know, it's very interesting because really what, what I'm working on ultimately, right, is systems change. That's what, that's my goal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so um, the thing with systems change is that there's, you have to be comfortable with the, with the uncomfortability of this tension that comes with participating in one system while you're trying to change it to another. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of tension there. And, um, I think you just have to acknowledge that and just sit in that uncomfortability. Because the thing is, you cannot change a system by not participating. So we've seen that too, right? Where, where people were just like, oh, this disgusts me and they were going to live off the grid. But you're not going to change a system that way. You will not, quote unquote, save the world doing that. You have to participate in the system at the same time. You don't fully like that system because you're trying to change it. Um, and that's a sort of what, what I've been doing at KPMG. You know, I've been convincing companies to do the right thing mm -hmm. by uh, showing them how it actually is in their benefit too, by, by quantifying to some extent the enormous impact, long-term impact of social capital, environmental, natural capital and sort of thing. Um, but it, it would be, it, it's really about, and it's just interesting to see that really, um, there's this notion that um, doing the right thing is costly. And, yeah. and that's just, it's just not true. It's just, it's only true if you measure very, very narrowly. Well, not even that. If you measure on a very short, over a very short horizon and only in financial stuff. If you go, if you look at any relatively longer term, so like at least a decade, it just always, almost always just makes sense. Do the right thing. Treat your customers well. Treat your employees well. Uh, don't pollute. Don't exhaust the resource that you use to make your products. All those things are actually common sense. Yeah, it's maybe, um, maybe it's a fix or fails pattern of when people say, uh, like doing well by doing good and like, oh, it's actually, we're reducing, uh, we're increasing our efficiency and reducing our pollution and we're saving money in the process and we can, so but that's being more efficient. It, if, if you make a polluting system more efficient, you may reduce pollution locally, but you pollute more efficiently. Yeah. Yeah. It's just being less bad. Yeah. I would, my phrase for it is stepping on the gas, thinking it's the brake, wanting congratulations. Yeah. There, there are several levels of corporate sustainability. Mm -hmm. um, and the first one is really uh, compliance. It's like, um, well, we have to do this. It's environmental regulations, okay? You know, and and sometimes you don't even do that, and then you just pay the fine. That's like the bottom uh, that some companies are still working on. And then the next step is like, oh, this is a reputational thing, so um, they're doing something, but it's like, yeah, we give to charity and stuff. Um, then the you really start to get a little bit into okay, that's maybe where we should be heading on the next level, where they say, yeah, but this is also. This uh, offers us innovation. We see this as an, uh, you know, being greener is is just good for. It offers uh, we get new products and, and it's it's a really spurs innovation in our product. 
And then, but really that's still, well, like you said, you're being less bad. It, uh, you know, it's, it's still, it's green products. You can charge a little bit more. Um, we're not going to get uh, to a sustainability revolution with that. It's not nearly enough. And really at some point you want to get to where you are being um, transformative and ultimately regenerative. So that's what, um, you know, what I would be saying, and I'm, I'm moving to a new position uh, soon to uh, Schneider Electric, which is, was voted the most sustainable company in the world uh, last year. Um, and they, you know, and really what they want to do is not just be innovative. They want to be a company that gives back more than what they take, right? If you look, and I think that's a very natural state. It's not dreamy at all. That's what everything in the world does. Your right to be here is like trees, for example, they take in stuff, but then they release more for, and that gives us all life. But every organism does that. And really a corporation should function as a natural organism. I'm always, when people are like, oh, this, we are a family at this company. I don't really like that because the family is still, um, there, there's a certain hierarchical thinking in that still. Um it really, it's a system too. A company is a system. So that means that you're, I think you could maybe think more of yourself as an organism. And in that sense, be regenerative. And that's the vision that I have for corporations. Did you always, was there a shift in your life to think and act this way? Or were you always this way? I think in a, in a yeah, I, th- I think in a way I've, I've always been this way. I actually think that we are all this way because we're, I think it's in our DNA. And you see this very strongly with a lot of uh, research into this, that we are wired for connection. And after a certain point where our, our, our most basic human needs, right, of food, shelter, and safety are met, really all we want is connection. We want to have meaningful relationships and, and a common purpose to work towards, etc. Research is very clear about this. And I think the reason that we, and again, research has already found this, but why don't more people really, why is our society not aimed towards that, about allowing us to make meaningful connections? Because there's a lot of loneliness um, around the world, and but also in the West, right? There's a lot of loneliness and um, a, a sort of a lack of connection um, because pe- that actually material stuff cannot provide you that sense of connection. Mm-hmm. So we very, I, I don't think there's, obviously, there's not a conspirator uh, that has designed us and keeps us this way. But if you have a system that that has as its purpose growth, um, satisfy, people who are who find a meaning in helping others don't make great consumers. And that's, that's the thing. If you want to keep selling material stuff, um, then you have to create people who are really trying to satisfy their needs for connection through material stuff. And that's ultimately what has happened, I think. When you think about all these, uh, all these ads, Valentine's Day, Mother's Day, they really connect your love to a certain person with stuff. This Mother's Day, show her that you care through this. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, that's, uh, why, why wouldn't you just say that? <laughs> yeah, it, it, you're making me, it's dark. It, it makes the view of what we've done to our world is pretty dark of like what you really want. I'm going to gatekeep. I'm going to, I'm going to make it, make you think that the way to show your love to your mother is through buying my thing. It seems well, so, yeah, so. Yeah. I, um, I, I mean, yes, true. But the other side is uh, that there's also a positive to it, which is it can actually be way better. Uh, which I think is important to realize because sometimes when you say, uh, hey, there are, there are limits to growth and maybe we should replace that purpose of growth, uh, people are almost uh, acting as if you want everybody to be equally poor, right? <laughs> They're like, oh, so you're against people in Africa having access to water? No, of course, it makes, perfectly, it makes perfect sense that people at substance levels still have economic growth. Um, but... There, there are vast differences in regions in the world, of course. Um, and let's just focus on America. Uh, we're, we're just choking on, on stuff. 
right? Every time any one of us move, we're like, oh, God, we, we, where does all the stuff come from? Uh, so... Uh, I think and that's that's mostly and it's by the way also what the authors said at the time they said it's the rich countries and especially the wealthy people in these rich countries that the solution uh, for to eradicate poverty is not more necessarily more growth um, it's to share more equally and again that might also be why there was such a pushback because it was a bit um, questioning vested powers in that sense. I, I, you just hit, reminded me that I wanted to ask you about like the doing the research and how that went and doing the numbers and seeing how it would work out. But I'm going to table that until next time. If I'm going to switch over, if that's okay with you, to do that process I was describing before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it it am I reading right that the environment is something that is important to you, something you act on? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> when what does the environment mean to you? When I mean when when you feel that motivation, what? motivates you i don't mean what are the goals in the future that you want to achieve but what's what was what's in you that when you when you think of the environment what do you think about uh when i think of the environment i think it's just um it's just a part of me i think we're we are uh, this just sounds very cliche but i think we are all connected and um i think we also have the dna of when we uh, were living together in in tribes and we were uh, very much, we didn't have this delusion that we are above nature. We were embedded in it. Society, human society has always been embedded in nature. And by the way, our economy has always been embedded in society. And um, I think we've kind of turned that upside down right now. And it just, for me, it just feels very unnatural. When you talk about, I'm picturing us uh, ancestors of ours. I, actually, I just, I'm just watching these documentaries on the Hadza. I don't know if you know this um, in Tanzania, the hunter gatherers that are still living as they did. And so yeah. I can't help but think of that as like in nature, they are living in, in nature in a way that we are not. It's not so paved over there. Is, is that what you're thinking of? Or like, do you picture, are there visuals that go with it? Yeah. I, um, yes, there are visuals that go with it. And obviously, I, I don't think we can return to that state. But I do think that that is the kind of uh, state that we come from and that we are still yearning for. And that's where we find our, that's how we make connections. So um, I think, for example, our technological capabilities should help us assist with reconnecting to one another and uh, restoring nature. I think ultimately, if you ask me, I don't think you technically did, but I'm going to answer the question anyway. If you answer, if you if you ask me, what, so what would that purpose be, right? What is our purpose if it's not pursuing growth? growth? And I would say, I think our we, we are in that, we're not above anything, but we are a very unique animal. We have unique cognitive capabilities, undeniably. And I think that gives us the responsibility to um, to to care and regenerate nature. Are these things that you've done yourself or that you've observed? I mean, that are you? I, I'm, I'm reading that you're not talking about an abstract thing that you read about of reconnecting and connecting and being a part of nature. Are there personal experiences of these things? If I'm not probing too deeply, um, no, I, I don't think so. Although, um, could you? Could you be a bit more specific? Well, I think a lot of people, when they talk about their experience with nature, tend to assume that it's so obvious that everyone has the same view. Mm. And people who grew up by the beach, they might be talking about the beach, but people who grew up in the mountains, it's not necessarily the same thing. But, um, and so different people have a different sense of what nature is. Like I've had guests, like uh, this... Um, one comes to mind who grew up in Brooklyn and for him, nature meant the soccer fields near where he was, which was very different than someone who grew up in Africa. And for her, the, oh, I don't know how to say it, Ngorongoro crater, like she talked about that. And often the emotions are similar, even though the particular experience may be different. And I don't know if you watch my TEDx talks, but I talk about my sledding hill growing up down the block. There was this, don't get me started. It was the best sledding mm-hmm. hill in the world. It was just how 
Um, and now I've gone back recently and, and visited it a couple of times as, as an adult and seeing it in the fall with the colors changing. And um, see, this is me talking about my, some of my experiences in nature or people I've talked to. And I'm curious if, you're, if, if things like this come to mind for you. Um, I, I have to say not so, not specifically because I, I have been lucky enough where I travel quite a bit in the world. So I've seen all the different ways in, and I've, I, I guess in general, I've just been uh, amazed at all the di- di- diversity in nature and all the things. It's, it's truly amazing. And if you look at nature, you just can't help but be humbled I think it is it is truly uh, baffling to me how, with the disrespect with which um, we as a society treat this incredibly powerful and generous uh, force in the world that gives life to everything. Um, th- th- so that's my emotion that I have. I grew up in the Netherlands, um, and um, there's not a nature's pretty tame. There, <laughs> uh, so you know, um, I, I don't know if that's. We have a lot of uh, greenery, but it, it's um, we, we've never had tigers or any like th- those amazing creatures there. Um, so I, I, I don't have any specific memory. I just, I, I just noticed that wherever I go, I'm just, and I see something. It's when I see some of any kind of manifestation of nature, uh, it just calms me a little bit. And um, I, I do think studies have shown that people have this in general. When they're surrounded by nature, they, they, they're more calm than when they are surrounded in a, um, in a, in a, in a dark lit room uh, with a lot of computers. There's, there's a real difference on how we act and how we feel in that sense. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. So I'm hearing a lot of, um, I heard connection, humility, calm. I mean, connection would seem one of the big ones, but also a disrespect mixed in of what we're doing. And I hear profound uh, depth of, of these feelings. And so I invite you, and this is at your option, uh, to think of something to do to act on those this connection to nature, these emotions, these feelings. And uh, before you either accept or not accept the invitation, think of something. I want to clarify something I didn't say. I didn't say what's the most important thing you could do. It's not about how to save the world or how to fix all the world's problems overnight. It's really about yourself to manifest physically in, in, some, in some activity the, this connection to nature that you have, this connection through nature to each other and this humility and the, and the diversity and things that you talked about with a couple of conditions. One is that something you're not already doing, something that has a physical behavioral component so that it leaves the world better in some way. Just That's just to rule out some people say, oh, I'll, I'll read a book or I'll read a bunch of, I'll watch a documentary. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not telling other people what to do. So a lot of people are like, oh, I'll get my team to do X. Fine, do that. But also something that you do with your own hands that has some effect. Um, you don't have to measure it, but just that, you know, it's non-zero. And that you're not already doing. And um, most people at this stage are like, not really sure. And it usually takes like five minutes of going back and forth. It's like really nailing down. But if you, if you come up with something, then I propose we talk a second time to share how it went. Sounds good. Yeah. Okay. Does anything come to mind did anything come to mind already of something you might do? Um, well, you, well, you said calm and uh, respect slash disrespect and connecting. Something did come to mind, but I, w- I want to give it some better thoughts to make it a proper challenge. And so it's not something that I've already been doing. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm gonna. Can I think about that and get back to you? Ah, uh, so everyone says that, and I say we're. It, I propose we go back and forth a bit because usually, the I've done this a bunch, and it, usually someone will at some point say, "Oh, you know what? I didn't even think of that. I'm gonna do this," and like it, yeah. like it's there, and a little back and forth goes a lot farther than solo reflection. Right. Okay. Well, what I was thinking about was um, going to uh, going to a nearby park and uh, at the same time uh, bringing something to pick up trash I find along the way. And uh, so uh, not just enjoying it, but also leaving it a bit, a little bit better than I found. Um, I'm not thrilled by that challenge um, because it's, it is something that I, I've done before. I haven't done it in a while, but um, I have done it before. So that's why I like I should probably find a better challenge. Well, if, if, um, if it's something you have done before, but it's not a habit, like you weren't going to do it already, that would fit the bill. But if you want to think of something that's more the next stage or something beyond that, uh, we might think of, is there anything, would you want to do the same thing more or would you want to do different things? If I'm reading um, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I, it seems a bit small. You know, I, I don't know if this, if this, this probably also doesn't qualify. Um, I'm writing a, a book right now about my limits to growth research. And mm-hmm. um, it's, it's the schedule to be released this June or July. Um, I wonder, that's definitely a first, that's my first book. But I was already writing it, um, so I don't know if that counts. Oh, so writing the book would be—you'd have to show how that affected how that affected the world, not how that would affect others to affect the world. Right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. So that, would, yeah, that would be mostly be inspiring other people, I think. Yeah. So, Although I look forward to reading the book. <laughs> yep. Um, I, I've made sure to publish it uh, open source, by the way. Oh, cool. uh, I thought that was important. So it's free for everybody once it's done. Um, hmm. Let's see. So reconnecting and, and no, I don't. I don't. Yeah, I, I would have to think about it. There's nothing that comes to mind right now. Since something did come to mind right away, you said you said something that um, I want to relieve you of, which is, oh, it doesn't seem that big, and. This is my, I can talk to you. I'll say it to you in ways that I, I can't say to most other people. But the point here is, is shifting views, not necessarily the magnitude. Because yeah. if you, I'm not sure, you, you said you've done it before. And if you did it before, I'm not sure your motivations for doing it before. But if your motivations for doing it now are connection to the things that you described to me, such as connection and diversity and, and, um, and humility and being a part of it, not above it, then that connection may make it a different experience. Absent you're saying, I don't want to do it because of X, it would qualify of like going to a park and picking up litter. Yeah. And also I could, um, it would I think actually be the first time I go to a park um, since my first child was born. She is now almost eight months. And so it could be, in that sense, it would be a first to uh, instill that kind of attitude at a young age to her. I'm going to tell you a story that, um, uh, well, first, I'm gonna, the next stage in this is to make it a smart goal, specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and time-bound. So um, if we went, or if you went with this, then it would be to pick like how many times to go and how much you'd pick up. But I have to tell you about a story about a guy that I'm working with. and. I, I've taken to meeting people in Washington Square Park, which is a couple blocks away from here. And um, so we meet there and we go and pick up litter together because that's what I do. I go, I pick up litter every day in Washington Square Park. And so I'm meeting him. It's a business meeting, but I say, let's go pick up litter because we're working on sustainability stuff. So it makes sense. Weeks later, which is saying like a couple weeks ago, he says, he saw his daughter picking up litter. And he says, oh, daughter, uh, I forget her name. But he's like, Great that you're doing this. How? Why pick up litter? And she says, because you pick it up. Oh. Hmm. He picks up because he picked up with me. 
I can't tell you how my heart is like bursting open with joy at like through this guy, I'm influencing her. He's even happier because it's his own daughter. Yeah. He didn't tell her to do it. She just saw him doing it and he's doing it just because why not? Because it's, he lives in a world now with someone who just picks it up as a matter of course. Yeah. And I, I would guess that he hasn't been in business meetings before with picking up people are picking up litter, litter together. That's amazing. That's, that's a, I, I, why? I think we found my challenge done. So let's make it a smart goal. Uh, how many times, what are you going to do? Can you be more specific about what? Uh, let's see. Um, I could do, you know, I could do this weekly. I could, could do this um, every weekend. We go for a walk, so we could do that anyway. And um, every time we go to a different park and we, uh, we pick up a little bit. Okay. And um, how many times would you do it before, if we come on a second time, if I said, how did it go? You've had enough experience that you can give a, a meaningful answer. Yes. Um, so when would our next... Uh, conversation be? T- yeah. When, uh, when would oh, our next conversation be? Yeah. We can schedule it based on your expectation of what will happen. I've had guests who... Um, I've had people who... They're heavy meat eaters and they say, you know, I'll go vegan for a little while. And they're like, one yeah. day is a lot. But I've had other <laughs> guests who say a year. And so... Oh, it, really? Oh, okay. Um, all right. Let's, um, let's do it in a month then. Okay. And then I will have been uh, to a park four times. All right. Now, the listeners can't see this, but before we start talking, you show me outdoors, there's snow all over the place. Does that, I, just making sure about the practicality of it, does it work out? Does being cold? Oh, yeah. I think, or... Oh, ooh, that's a good point. Because um, if it's covered in snow, I might not be able to find it. But well, now we'll see. We'll, we'll, that should be, also, it's, it, it's uh, going to, it should melt away soon anyway. Yeah, no, no, this shouldn't be a problem. Okay, cool. Yeah, I, uh, as I said that, I was thinking of, um, I like biking and I like having more biking infrastructure here in New York City. Mm. And all the time people say like, oh, it's too cold, it's too this, too that. And my response is, somewhere in Amsterdam right now, there's a bunch of grandparents who've been doing what you say is impossible for 80 years. Oh my God, it's so funny that you say that. Because I'm Dutch, obviously. Yeah. And so yesterday... Um, you know, everybody was like, we can't go outside. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Like you have no, like this, we don't do this. Like if it's this snow, we just bike through it anyway. So you're telling me that I, I can go on my bike through this kind of snow. You and your SUV cannot venture outside right now. I, I, (laughs) that's literally what I said to my mom. Like, I don't know what these people get all neurotic about. (laughs) Let it be known that I've, I go out in this weather. (laughs) No problem. And oh man, I got to tell you about a guest of mine. Um, this is the first guy who came to me and said, I've been listening to your podcast. I would like to be a guest because I, I've been listening to you working with people and I came up with something using your technique. So I bring him on. I don't know what it is. And he says he's going to bike to work every day for a school year because he's a school principal. And I'm like, sounds great. He's a regular guy, right? He's not an athlete or anything like that. Here's the trick. He's in Fairbanks, Alaska. So um, wow. the record was minus 40. Oh, man. Which is, by the way, oh. the same Celsius and Fahrenheit. <laughs> and here's why and he does it. He's like a regular guy, right? He's not like anything special. And I asked him about it. And he, I, I think he was trying to make a big deal of how, oh, yeah, of course, I just wrote in. No big deal. And, uh, but he really was, he didn't make a big deal of it. And I, 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 don't think he, I don't think he was really trying to play it down. Here's what I learned from him is that if you, if it's, if it's well below freezing like that, if you inflate the tires indoors, when you go outdoors, the temperature drops and they get deflated. So you have to reinflate the tires because PV equals NRT. Of course. Wow. That's okay. Well, you know, as a, as a former biker, uh, respect, respect respect. to that person. All right, so after we uh, stop recording, um, I propose we'll get out the calendars and, and figure out when, um, you know, when to record in, in a month. Yes, sounds good. And um, so, yeah, so I walked you through this process. Is it, are you, um, I mean, I got you, led you to pick something to do and, and commit to it. Are you doing it for me? Um, no, uh, yes, also. 
Um, but I also, I, 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 now that I've heard those stories, I'm like, this is actually, this is going to be fun. And you know what? Um, it is a little bit different because I have this new family now. So um, it is actually also a way uh, to connect around my values with my family. Yeah, I'm, I'm hearing stuff that like when people do um, work on systems, it's not chess. This is, this affects your relationships. This is acting on your values is, um, well, I, we'll talk about it next time because I think as you do it, I predict that, I, I, I hear that you're going to like it, but I predict that you're going to like it more than you think in ways that you didn't, that you couldn't predict until you're actually doing it. Mm-hmm. I think you might be right, but yes, I will tell you next time we speak. Yeah, I hope I haven't like uh, led the witness too far there. All right, I pr- I hope we get to pick up talking about limits to growth, talking about systems, talking about your experience mm-hmm. with your. I, do you say daughter? Yes. With your daughter and your neighbors, um, your neighborhood. Uh, anything to wrap up with this time before? Anything you want to say directly to the listeners? Anything I didn't think to ask to bring up? Um. No, I mean, if they want to, they, they, I, I would always encourage people to maybe Google limits to growth. Um, and I would uh, like to, because we discussed a couple of things, we use terms like collapse. Um, and I, I think I mentioned it, but I really want to reiterate that limits to growth really was a vision for a better tomorrow. And that my research indicates that we can still get there uh, if we make drastic steps if we really change the way that we're doing things that we uh if we alter uh, pretty much uh, everything about how we meet our needs today um we can actually probably meet them better uh, in in better ways and more of them um and it's totally possible i'm struggling not to pursue this question. We have to start with this next time. We'll, I have to make sure to get to this next time because, yeah, you said drastic. And I think a lot of people hear drastic and think, oh, but then we can meet our interests better. Like, Well, yeah, exactly. So it is um, like if we, we can't keep going like this in that sense, um, that is part of the message. But it's also like it could be way better than this for everyone. And I think that's really the key message. It's not avoiding collapse. Changing our ways to avoid collapse is not a capitulation to grim necessity. It's really all working together for uh, something that's really better for everyone. Where where not just a society in which collapse is avoided, but but where we are all positively thriving. Note to self, begin next conversation with how does drastic change lead to thriving? What are we not doing? What could we do? I mean, drastic change sounds complicated, but drastic improvement sounds enjoyable. And I think, I, am I right? This is, this is like a core of your passion is like the potential that we have here. It's, it's within our grasp to drastically improve oh, our world. It is, exactly. Uh, and maybe you're right. Uh, drastic improvement sounds better than drastic change. Thank you for that. <laughs> and that guy who walked out of the room is like most of the world is somehow disengaging. Whereas if they do engage, what they're rejecting, what they're missing is so wonderful, so joyful. Is it like that for you? Yes, it is. And and it is, I believe, strongly also our more natural state. You know, we've been told um, by the economic paradigm of today which is mostly based on neoclassical economics, which just reduces us to consumers and producers. And we are so much more. When you look at latest research, um, you know, researchers are more and more coming out and saying, you know, it was actually never survival necessarily of the fittest, certainly never of the strongest. Um, It was survival of the kindest. We have been so successful as an animal because we can collaborate more than anything, that is our strength, to be able to collaborate so much because we're kind. And over time, we've gone more, gotten more and more kind too. And that's really our natural state. I'm now at a cliffhanger for next time. So I'm looking forward to it. Hearing how things went and, and expanding on this. Yes, looking forward to it. Guy Harrington, thank you very much. Thank you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? 
step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.